Hello and welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we talk about the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm Helen McKenna, I'm a senior fellow here at the Fund, and I'm going to be your host for this episode. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by a very special guest who is making his debut appearance on the podcast, and that guest is our very own Chief Executive, Richard Murray. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Helen. So later in this episode, we'll be talking more about your career journey and your leadership style, as well as getting your reflections on the role that organisations such as the King's Fund can play in the wider health and care system. But first, when you were a child, what job did you see yourself doing? When I was really a child, it was definitely a zookeeper. But there aren't many jobs in zookeeping, and then I find out I'm allergic to fur. So <laughs> that quickly, that, that, that killed yeah. that particular job. As a teenager, I had a very brief desire to be a pop singer, and indeed formed a very short-lived uh, <laughs> duo pop group with one of my friends who happened to own a synthesizer. And you kind of thought, would this be a Pet Shop Boys, Erasure, <laughs> Soft Cell? But we were somewhat held back by the fact that Neither of us could write music, and neither of us could sing, and in fact, neither of us could play the synthesizer either. So instead, I decided to go to university. Oh, well. Aww. Music's loss. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm pretty convinced that actually not everyone who's successful in music can sing or write music. So. <laughs> if only I'd known that at the time. <laughs> so I wanted to start by spending a bit of time exploring your career journey to date. You trained as an economist, and from there, you specialised in health economics. What was it that drew you to health specifically? Well, I'll be absolutely frank, it was a mistake. So I was um, (laughs) an academic, took a lecturing job in London, and I came down from York, and York University is the centre of health economics in England, and and indeed still is, and we work very closely with colleagues at York. But the people in London that I went to work for mistakenly assumed that I'd come from the health economics community in Europe, which I hadn't. I had nothing to do with them whatsoever. <laughs> and they put me down to teach a health economics course. So I quickly had to learn it and become a health economist slightly by mistake. It's absolutely fascinating. It's a you know really interesting, touches every part of people's lives. Yeah. And then roles came up in the Department of Health and I moved across into that as a, as a true health economist. But it mm. was something of a mistake at the very beginning, but one I've not regretted ever since. And once you settled on health as a sector, you spent time in a number of roles and different organisations, including, obviously, you've mentioned the Department of Health. You were at McKinsey's. You were at NHS England. Can you tell me a bit about the thinking behind that journey? Were they part of a career plan, for example? Um, They were not part of a long-term career plan, no. So I I did commit to health. So all of those moves were within the world of health. And when I was at McKinsey, that's almost all I worked on while I was there. There were a couple of things that did guide mm. the moves that I made, partly the the kind of culture of the organisations that I was going to be working in and I stayed longer in ones that, that were good and less long in some that, that weren't so good. And I think for a lot of them, if, if, particularly if you work in health, you're often surrounded by very, very dedicated people. The kind of moral force of the NHS means most people are hugely motivated. Mm. But that also means you kind of need to know that you're having an impact, you're doing some good. And you mentioned culture there. What are your reflections on how the culture varies across those different settings? Culture does vary enormously and, I, and, I, and even within organisations over time. And one of the ones I've taken away with me over the years is um, what they call the obligation to dissent. 
if you if you think it's wrong, then say so. And if you don't speak up and say, I think this is wrong, then you're part of the problem. Yeah. And I think that's got real power. Um, also, in the other places that I've worked in, I, I've seen leaders, the point at which they get surrounded by people that are either too afraid to speak out mm. or aren't motivated to speak out is the point at which you can start dating the end of their career. Yeah. You need people around you, often people that you trust, but also that value their dedication and value their sense of responsibility that they don't want things to go wrong and I do fear sometimes in the NHS that um, whether it's, if you think about things that happened at mid-staffs or other, mm. other places that, that that willingness to say I don't think this is right something's gone wrong um, I don't think we're working best for patients is often at the root cause of many things that, that then end up unfortunately on the front pages of the newspapers. And so you've been at the fund since 2014, previously as the director of policy, and then you became chief executive, I think, around this time last year. So you've been in post for 12 months. What are your reflections on the role so far? Has it been just as you expected or is there anything that surprised you about it? I think one of the things, um, and, and I, I think probably particularly in an organisation like the Kingsman, we are, we are small, we're not very big, but we're very, very diverse in the businesses that we work in. So we are a classic think tank, but we also do a lot of organisational development. We've also got a building, we've got a, a venue, we're running events outside of them. And so there's a, an element of the logistical work that yeah. you, you need to get your hands around, very much reliant on other experts, mm-hmm. obviously, and relying on people that are both very talented, but also willing to tell you if you think you're going down the wrong route. I think the other thing that does wear, I think, does does rest quite heavily on on my shoulders, but also I think on other senior people at the fund, and of course everybody at the fund, and I'm sure was the same with Chris Ham, is we are in a very privileged position of independence. And there are many problems across health, healthcare, social care, voluntary sector. And you do feel a real sense of responsibility to make the most of all the assets and all the advantages that we've got so that so that somebody notices, so that you actually make a difference mm. and that you don't end up in three years' time looking at a system that's still really restruggling really and think, well, I could have done something about that and didn't. Yeah. And so that, that, I think, that sense of responsibility of really marshalling all the skills and talents that are here for the maximum benefit is something that you you kind it's kind of the thing that sometimes you're sitting on on a Sunday thinking have we got that right is are we still doing the right thing I also wanted to get your views on the responsibilities of organizations like ours and the role we play in the wider health and care system I think particularly given your experience of working across the sector how do you see the purpose of the King's Fund and how that fits well, we undertake a number of different roles. I'd start by really emphasising the advantages, the huge advantages and the responsibility that goes with being independent. Mm-hmm. We are responsible to our trustees, of course, for the enduring sustainability of the King's Fund. We're over 100 years old. We want to know that we're going to be here in the next 100 years as well. But that independence means that we can step outside both some of the political and operational challenges and try to be as far as possible an, a neutral, independent body, but that really wants to help. I, I mean, so I know it's mm. a cheesy phrase, we're here to help you. But in our case, there, there isn't much point of us unless we can do that. We still have a very important role 
speaking truth to power. Yeah. Um, we can speak out. You need to use that well. Um, so it's not just chucking sticks and stones either at NHS leaders or politicians. You also need to be ready to say, well done. That was fantastic, really. So that you're trying to provide a genuine picture. So we really need to make sure that balance is there. Like others, we're, we're trying to help find best practice, help people work their way through. We can do it by being, working across the country, by drawing on international evidence to try and help point the way that may be the way forward. But also I think we do things around providing a space, a safe space for people to come together. We don't always need to know the answer, but we can by putting the right people in the room, they can talk to each other. And I think, again, even though we don't always know the answer, through bringing together the right people in the public domain, in kind of events and things like that, again, we can find a safe, safer space for people to think through the problems that they're finding and find their own solutions. And you know, we've talked about the role of think tanks. Being evidence-based is clearly something that we prize a lot at the King's Fund. Um, but there's also a challenge for think tanks, and I think for us, to come up with and promote new ways of doing things that sometimes goes beyond the evidence. How do we make sure, from your perspective, how do we make sure that we do both? Well, you're absolutely right, Helen. And for us, and I think for others, when you want to move beyond that into, well, I can't prove it, but I think this is this is the right thing to do, it's just to be really clear when you're doing that. Mm when you're moving beyond saying, look, I can give you references for this or I can put up the researcher that's done it and you're not in that zone anymore, but particularly in an emergency, sometimes waiting for the peer-reviewed publication. Well, to be honest, you don't bother waiting because it'll be too late. Yeah. You you need to be timely. And if you're not timely, then don't bother. Mm. And I think that re- this requires us sometimes to say, um, I, I couldn't prove this necessarily but this must be a good idea and I'll give you an example some of the stuff that we're arguing now around international recruitment could I prove or forecast exactly the number of new nurses Mm. that we might get by revising the way that we try and attract nurses from abroad and we recruit them well no I couldn't am I all convinced that this is definitely going to be better than not doing it well yes I am yeah so that that the evidence base takes me so far but by being clear about a bit of logical reasoning behind that Mm. Um, you can still make recommendations and still comment and suggest things. But it it does mean you need to be clear when you're moving between one and the other. Yeah. And going beyond the evidence then, for you, what would your non-evidence-based vision for the health and care system be? If you were to pick out, you know, a couple of things that, that, you know, you couldn't back up, but you think that's where it should be headed. So, and of course, you've asked me the things that I couldn't back up. So, of course, there's lots of things I would I would suggest that we did that I absolutely yes. could back up. One of the ones that I think is most current is the role, uh, the potential role for taxation and regulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen a little bit in the sugar tax. And one of the pushbacks that often comes back is, well, we don't know what effect it will have ultimately on health. Um, what's the evidence based? And I, and I do understand that. But if you're thinking about, shall I put a tax on saturated fat? Well, you're not going to kill anybody by doing it. Mm. If it doesn't work, well, then Try change something it. Else. Yeah. Do it off and do something else. It's, it's, it's actually, I think, a bit easier in some areas of tax policy to be a bit more innovative. Mm. Be careful if you're training up lots of new doctors that take years, are hugely expensive, and they might, might find out you've made the wrong decision. It's difficult to go back, even more difficult if you haven't trained them to suddenly find new ones. Tax policy, you can change it. 
yeah. year on year. It's, yeah. it's not the end of the world. And I do think a bit more imagination about how those other levers are used to help people's health um, would be a good thing. And I do think the sugar tax was one of those perhaps slightly surprising uh, innovations that does seem to have worked. So I'd probably pick on that one. And I guess inaction has an opportunity cost as well. Um, I mean, Helen, absolutely. And I think that is so true. In not doing something has, in economic terms, has an opportunity cost and can be incredibly damaging. When you can see a deep workforce crisis in the NHS, inaction is probably the most dangerous thing of all. Uh, if you can see, as we can at the moment, some of our some of the success over the last few years, over the recent decades rather, in reducing cardiovascular disease, inaction might be the most dangerous thing because you're basically sitting on top of a, of a, of a trend going in the wrong direction. Yeah. So I'm not suggesting running off and doing 10,000 things all at the same time. But um, people really need to think through that inaction, however easy it might be to say no, is sometimes the most dangerous thing of all. And you mentioned tax and regulation there, because my team is currently writing a briefing on tax and regulation that should be out in the next month or so. So uh, listeners, watch out for that. So one criticism of think tanks and the wider charity sector is that they lack diversity, particularly at senior levels. And obviously, you're involved in the work we're doing internally here at the Fund to improve our own diversity, but we still have lots to do. And I wanted to ask you about what this work means to you, um, and also from your perspective, when it comes to organisations like us that are focused on research, what impact that lack of diversity has. So I think part of the problem, I think sometimes for, for charities... Is, is slightly the belief that we're on the side of the angels. Mm. Or are, aren't we good people? Yeah. And so well, what, why would we have done this? Is Surely you don't mean us. But of course, when you actually look at the numbers and the data, you think, oh, God, it must mean us, mustn't it? Of course it's us. What have we done that has made us either unattractive as an employer or that when people have joined us, people's careers haven't flourished as well as they should do? And so we're doing a lot on that. And that's both an issue about Justice, of course, is also just a dreadful waste of people's skills if, if they can't flourish mm. within uh, an organisation. And the fund obviously speaks to the service about diversity. And you kind of think, well, put your own house in order first. Uh, and I should say, in many ways, on a, on a personal basis, that is sometimes quite challenging. I'm, I'm a middle-aged gay man. I grew up in the 80s. So sometimes to think that we've not done well on diversity is, on a personal basis, quite a challenging thing to accept. Yeah. Uh, again, slightly because I kind of saw myself sometimes on uh, the other side of the fence. Um, the challenge, I think, for us, we're not very big. So... W- it's difficult to employ every group that you would wish to across society. So we really need to make sure that we are listening and an open organisation. So you mentioned that you'd grown up in the 80s as a gay man. And I just wondered, you know, when we're thinking about our work on inclusivity, given that, given the work that we're doing, you're now the chief executive of the King's Fund. Did you face obstacles along the way in your own career in, in relation to your sexuality? Uh, what I think, like, quite quite a few people from the 80s and well in well into the 90s what you did is learn to edit your life at work mm-hmm. and so you had you kind of had a choice you if you wanted to be you could be really out and be v- really open but if you did then that could make sure you never got promoted and end your career 
quite sharply and it was made quite clear from things that people said that that was what would happen or you you did that classic thing about not referring to uh, you didn't use sexual pronouns when you spoke about things and tried to keep some distance from people at work particularly if I was particularly older people because that's where mm. that's where that was most visible until you were sure what the lay of the land was yeah now I think in the organizations I've worked in that was always quite feasible it's quite a possible thing to do and I, to be honest worked in organizations that actually were at the better end of the kind of that sea change in society it does color sometimes the things that you do and you think we, we we had a big event here of course a huge london pride this year that's enormous and i i look back and it's such a sea change from when you know even in well into the 1990s uh, i remember um walking down victoria street trying to get a cab and cab drivers would look at me and my friends and just drive off they would wow. put you up and pubs in Soho would have big signs outside saying no gays and nightclubs would say no gays on the door yeah. and nowadays of course they're all chasing the pink pound and the, and the pound <laughs> the pinkish pound of their allies yeah but it's been a huge such a change of course I'm older and I'm a chief executive and I've got a degree of white privilege that that mm. removes some of those other problems as I understand, some of those experiences are quite personal to me and to the generation that grew up around me. It's it's sometimes just to try and remember that when other people speak about the things that they've gone through, I just need to recognise that how different people's mm. things are. And I should know that because mine was. And so it, for me, it's just to remember that I ought to listen to other people as well as sometimes thinking about how the world changed for me and the people around me. Thanks for sharing that. And um, the, the point about self-editing is really, really interesting in terms of yeah, how that shapes who you are at work. Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. Um, our listeners may or may not know that it's a time of change at the King's Fund and January 2020 marks the start of our new five-year strategy. Can you very briefly run us through the King's Fund's new strategic priorities? Yes. So, so very quickly, three key priorities, helping Places and communities work better together to improve health and care. This is growing out of things that we've done before on integrated care, but this really looks to join together health service, local government, the voluntary sector to try and do the things that working together can really improve people's health. It's a big culture and organisational challenge. I've mentioned workforce and leadership. We've worked in leadership for a long time. I'm really pleased to see how that's raised up the agenda we now recognise this as an absolute call on the resources of the fund, both to help those leaders, but also to help the people that work within the system, whether they work in healthcare, whether they work in social care, mm. or whether they're volunteers. And I think we'll take a particular focus on primary care and community services to begin with. And then also to try and improve the health of people with some of the really worst health outcomes. We do know, of course, that wider determinants determine generally health inequalities but particularly there are some people rough sleepers people with learning disabilities who really get a very very poor service sometimes from NHS from local government and from other parts of the system when you're in those very difficult situations often it is those bodies that have the answer and it's an onus on them to try and work out how to make their services accessible and to work really well for some of these most poorly treated groups and I think again that plays to some of our skill sets and being able to draw those things together doesn't mean to say we step away from the truth to power about 
thinking and trying to explain the very, very complicated world to people out there as well. So people still can continue to see us do that. And indeed, we do recognise that as a really important call. The only thing, again, I wouldn't want to lose, those are our external priorities, but we are trying to be a more diverse organisation. We are trying to work well with others. And when we speak to people outside in the system about the importance of distributed models of leadership, I'm getting more technical now, but, but, but really trying to give people responsibility and power do the best and we're also trying to do that internally and mm. so alongside a set of external priorities we are trying to change the way we do things internally as well and if we could fast forward to the end of 2024 and the end of the strategy cycle where would you like the king's fund to be i'd, I'd like us to be recognized as, as having made across all those priorities of having made a real difference when I say recognized I mean that that's because we did it so so a we did it and b it had an impact and alongside it that people do think that on some of the things that we're talking to people about that we've kind of we've walked the walk as well as talked the talk so if we are speaking to people about issues around diversity it's because we've, we've been on that journey with them uh, we know how hard it is and we've, we've tried to learn alongside them as we've done it and of course, in December, we had the general election and we now have a Conservative government with a clear majority in Parliament. What do you think the new government's top priorities should be for the NHS and social care? So one of them really is to confront the workforce crisis across all of health and social care. And by health, I mean that in the, in the genuine sense of health that includes charities, third sector volunteers that are also contributing to health in this country. And um, we know the, the people plan hopefully will come out quite soon that should take us a big step forward on that. I, I really do hope and I, I would leave no stone unturned to advise the government to whatever it can do. And we have to be clear, it a lot of this sits with local employers and, and um, local organisations, whatever it can do to help. It should do. Uh, secondly, of course, is a long-term solution to social care. I really do want a long-term solution to social care, and the government's got a big majority. It's probably the first time in more than a decade that it could push something through if it wanted to. My only thought for them as they do that is to absolutely do do it, but don't forget to fund social care in the meantime. The existing system is there. Even with the fastest reform in the world, we're going to be living with the existing system for a while longer so make sure that that gets the money it needs in the short term. And possibly be a bit careful about shiny, exciting new policies and structures. Governments with big majorities sometimes get drawn into organisational reform in the NHS. I'm not saying no organisational reform, but be wary of it. I don't think that figure did anything, as the Conservatives said, in the run-up to the election, but then I'm not too sure people thought they'd end up with quite such a substantial majority at the end of it. I want to talk to you about your role as a leader and your leadership style. So if I were to ask you to describe your leadership style in, let's start with three words, what would it be? I'm going to cheat um, and, and say three words. You tell me, <laughs> uh, and I and I say I that say, is so. <laughs> I say that because that so do awkward. you know what? I've sat with I've sat with other leaders who've, um, and I'm not going to mention any names. Who said, "Oh, I've got an inclusive leadership style." 
really want to hear people's voices and build up from stuff. And then you quite quickly learn after about a month or two that if in any way you disagree with them, your career is over yeah. and they're really vindictive <laughs> and they never like being contradicted. And so there's something about the style that leaders, the way that they think that they come across. Yeah. And there's another one about, well, what do they actually come across? So I think if I was, if I was being truly evidence-based, mm. I'd say, look at the next staff survey for the King's Fund and see what people say about me. And then you'll know what my leadership style is. What I try to do is be an inclusive leader. Mm-hmm. I mean, who, who doesn't say that these days? But within the fund where I recognise um, on any one issue, almost certainly there's somebody else in this building that knows more about it than I do, is provide enough of the strategic direction and oversight so that people, are, people have the tools and understanding and then to make way for them to do well themselves. Now, there are some organisations that have the luxury that we have here or I have here um, to be surrounded by dedicated people who really want to do well but but I do and so it's to make the most of that it does mean sometimes being ready to say no when either they they haven't got the relevant information to hand or that you've got competing views within the organization so you can't abdicate being chief executive there are times you have to say that look I know none of you can agree this this is what it's going to have to be but most of the time, um, that's not the way to do it. Not in an organisation where you really need people to own the message, yeah. to really believe in it. Um, you can't do that by telling them. Can you tell us about a time in your career when you felt that you'd failed and what you learned from that experience? I'll give you a very quick one, mm. and then I'll give you a slightly longer one. So my interview answer to that question is the workforce crisis in the NHS has been growing for a long time as a slow burn. Mm. I do feel responsible that the King's Fund turned to this slightly late in the day. Mm. We were hearing it. People were telling us. Mm. Uh, but I think partly because we weren't all coming in the room together and just sitting down and saying, what are the top things that people are telling you? Mm. Um, and I think if we'd done that, we would have realised that everybody was being told that there's a workforce crisis here. We knew it, but I just don't think we recognised how deep it was and that that wasn't part of our strategy at the time to do anything about it. That wasn't the areas we were working on. But we probably needed to think again and probably weren't drawing in, making the most of all the things that we knew. Of course, we've tried to overcome that now. If I think of one that I failed in uh, and probably left more scars on, it was probably... I was chief analyst for the Department of Health, chief economist as well, and for NHS England too. And as the reform system was set up and AOBs appeared and teams got split up, um, I knew and began to try and get to a place where there was commonality over methodologies, over assumptions. So you don't get people just arguing about the data or arguing about the analysis. It's just so unhelpful. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and most of the time it's because a spreadsheet's made a minor difference to somebody else's spreadsheet. And there's nothing materially different. And you trap people into arguments about what's going on. I think there was a real chance when when those bodies were set up to have really brought back a, a common view across all the bodies on analytical work and I did begin to do that and successors have continued to do it and they're they're making more progress on that now but this is some years later why did I fail I think I think there's a there's a thing for everybody for everyone and I think particularly for leaders about the urgent and the important Mm. and I felt at the time there was a lot of urgent things to do 
and I mistakenly thought I had more time than I did. And so I left it as unfinished business. And if I could go back, I would have sorted that out and recognised that some of the other things that were urgent were urgent. But you know what? That they could be allowed to slip and yeah. just don't do them. And I did. I kind of lost a bit of sight of that. I really like the workforce example because it just shows how seriously you take the responsibility of a think tank, our our role in the system to be to be looking at those yeah. issues and raising them to the fore of the system. So just before we finish, we've talked a lot about your working life, but when it comes to your time outside of the office, what do you do to relax, Richard? Oh, my God, what do I do to relax? Rather, uh, this is what everybody says, uh, I read. Well, I do, I do actually, and people always say, oh, God, you've got to go into work on the Northern Line and the Victoria Line. But I just stand on the tube and read my book. And um, my, my secret Santa mm-hmm. this year was... James Bond, it was Casino Royale, and I've never read any. And I'll tell you, I'm at risk of missing my tube stop. Really? And I nearly, I nearly ended up at Warren Street today by accident. So that, with my partner, because we live in London, we do try, and also because we enjoy it, to see probably more live music now than we did. So we're not out very, very late at night in dark nightclubs without a seat listening to the latest you're doing the older people we're doing the older people's version exactly (laughs) if if you you look at the you're like hang on a minute this ticket hasn't got a chair and seat number on it i begin to get a little bit suspicious so we go out and see quite a lot of like music we like jazz then everybody my age likes jazz but also we try quite a lot to make the most of being in london which means you can hear music from other countries too so we're great fans of fado which is portuguese Mm, um so really could recommend that to people. I also, by the way, which has really shocked everybody in the King's Fund, is that I'd like bird watching. And an, an unnameless member of staff came up and said, well, I just can't believe that's true. You're the last person I'd have thought would ever have cared anything about birds. And I kind of thought, I don't know quite what A, you thought I did, and B, what's the image in your head of a bird watcher? And is I the technical term for that twitching? Is that that's, if you're really, that's if you really do it properly. I'm, right. I'm an amateur. So I'm not, uh, I claim no great skills at doing it. Um, my husband, the first time we ever met, was about to go on holiday. And he did say where he was going, that there was a nature reserve behind it. And he did say, oh my God, I'll just be full of all the really boring bird watchers. <laughs> and I thought, oh dear, this relationship is really getting off to a bad start. Anyway. Um, so Richard, thank you so much. That's it from us. You can find the show notes for this episode and all our previous episodes at www.kingsfund.org.uk forward slash KF podcast. I'm Helen McKenna and thanks as always to our producers Ian Ford and Sarah Murphy. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us. We'd really love to know what you think and what you'd like to hear more about. So please tell us by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or get in touch either on Twitter at The King's Fund or my account at Elena Macarena. Thank you for listening. Hope you can join us next time.